What's up, everybody? It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors. Thanks, Andy. Uh, good to see you guys, and uh, Merry Christmas to you. Thank you for being here and celebrating Christmas with us. Um, so here's the deal. I've got one shot, okay? Uh, I get one shot to talk to you extensively about Christmas until 2013, and uh, that's been a lot of pressure on me because there's a lot of things you can talk about uh, around Christmas. You know, there's, uh, I mean, for weeks since Thanksgiving, I'm, I'm wrestling, do you take the cultural approach, right? Do you talk about uh, how giving trends in the United States, how holiday parties around our city reflect a longing for true generosity, beauty, and community around Denver? Uh, do you take, like, the old-school Christmas pageant nativity approach to tell, you know, about uh, shepherds keeping watch of their flock by night, uh, wise men bringing frankincense and myrrh to baby Jesus, uh, Mary wrapping baby Jesus in swaddling clothes? Uh, yeah, like I said, since Thanksgiving, for weeks, I'm wrestling with what exactly is it that I talk about. Uh, and then I didn't really settle on anything until last week. Uh, a week ago, last weekend, uh, Megan and I, along with some friends from our city group, uh, Mark and Angie, uh, we went downtown and we went to a Christmas symphony put on by the Colorado Symphony in downtown. It was uh, fantastic. It was, it was really, really great. Anytime I go to a, a symphony, it makes me feel tremendously more cultured uh, than I really am. Uh, so I didn't really feel like, feel like I fit in the room, but it was fantastic, you know. And, and as I was sitting there witnessing this, taking this all in, it's fantastic. Uh, you have the story of uh, shepherds keeping watch of their flock by night. You have the stories of Mary. You have the stories of wise men. Uh, there was even a cameo by Santa Claus who did like a special Christmas break dance, which I'm pretty sure uh, is not in the Bible, but it was entertaining nonetheless. Uh, as I'm there taking all this in, uh, what I noticed is there's one guy left out of the story who's left out of the story almost all the time, uh, the character of Jesus's adoptive dad, Joseph. Joseph gets very little love, which I think is a shame because of everyone in the Christmas story. Joseph probably gets the least amount of love, but of all the characters in the Christmas story, he probably is the most relatable figure. Now, uh, it's difficult to relate to shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night because most of you live downtown, and you know to own a sheep would be illegal downtown, so it's a little bit hard to relate to that. It's the same way when you think about, you know, wise men bringing frankincense and myrrh to baby Jesus. Because, like, if you had a friend who just had a baby, you would not know where to go get frankincense and myrrh. Most of you don't even know what frankincense and myrrh uh, are. But... Every so often, in a story that we've heard thousands of times before, whether it's uh, through Christmas pageants, whether it's through the reruns of Christmas Vacation that we see on TV, every so often, even though we see the story of a man who lived thousands of years ago, and yes, he didn't have Facebook or the internet or even electricity, every so often when you get beneath the surface and you get beyond the geographical and the cultural barriers, what you see beneath the surface is the story of a man named Joseph who's struggles, whose fears, whose trials are really no different than the ones you and I will face tomorrow morning. Yes, I admit on the surface that I mean, here's a guy who, who seems like we have nothing in common with. It's probably why he's left out of the story fairly often. But once you get beneath the fact that, yes, he didn't have electricity, this is a man who as he was trying to make sense of what God is doing in the Christmas story, manifests struggles and fears and challenges that are no different than the ones you face and are no different than the ones I face as well. And so tonight, what we're going to do is show Joseph some love, okay? We're going to show Joseph some love. We're going to study his story, and we're going to look at the Christmas story through the lens of his experience. It's going to be very simple as we see his story unfold. We're going to see his story unfold in three simple acts. What you're going to see is the weight 
what you're going to see is the dilemma, and then you're going to see the resolution, okay? So we're going to see Joseph's story, from, uh, the, the Christmas story, from the perspective of Joseph. Now, we're going to begin with the wait, okay, the wait. And we're going to see this in verse 18, in the verse part, first part of verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, I want to hit the pause button on the story at this point because it's going to be difficult for many of us in this room, I would say almost all of us, to really see uh, these 11 words in verse 18 as being all that significant, to see why it's it's such a big deal. See, there were thousands of years of anticipation for verse 18 to come to fruition. Now, uh, some of you are holding a Bible in your hands, and if you notice, there's hundreds of pages that precede, that precede Matthew 1, verse 18. And these hundreds of pages are the Old Testament, and they tell the story of Joseph and his ancestors eagerly waiting, anticipating the coming of verse 18, that Jesus, the birth of Jesus Christ would take place in this way. So you just need to know on the front end that you're jumping into the story as soon as things get good, and it's kind of hard to uh, appreciate the magnitude of the weight that Joseph and his family had to endure. Uh, I was thinking about this week, it would be something like uh, if you just moved to Denver and you made friends with somebody who's family for generations waited for the Denver Nuggets to win a championship, uh, and their grandparents had season tickets, their parents had season tickets, they had season tickets, they eagerly anticipated and it would be the saddest thing ever uh, because the Nuggets have been horrible for most of their existence, and they have never come close to sniffing a championship. And then you, you know, transplant into Denver like many of us have, and you know, take an interest in the Nuggets, and they win the very first year you move there. You may enjoy it, but it's going to be hard for you to understand the magnitude uh, of why your friend's family is rejoicing because they've been waiting for generations for this to come. I know it's sort of a cheesy illustration, but... What it reflects is it's hard to understand the magnitude of what's being communicated when we jump into the story as soon as things get good. In fact, Matthew is so concerned with us understanding uh, how much of a weight this was for Joseph and his ancestors that if you notice, the first 17 verses that uh, precede verse 18 is nothing but telling you about the weight. Dozens of generations, 2,000 years of history. Look at that in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, and Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon. I'm not even like halfway through this genealogy, and you're like, this is not inspiring to me. Right? Like, motivate me, challenge why does he put that? so we would understand that for multiple generations for thousands of years Joseph and his family waited they waited for God to deliver on the greatest promise that he ever made now Here's what's important to understand is they not only waited, but you need to understand the nature of the promise. And, and the nature of the promise they were waiting for was for God to alleviate a problem, okay? So the nature of the promise that they were waiting for to be answered by God was the alleviation of a problem. And the problem centered on the fact that sin ruled over the world. We believe that God originally created the world to exist in beauty and harmony. God created the world and us to exist in right relationship with him. But our first parents chose to reject 
connect with God. And consequently, what happened was a disease called sin crept into the world. It crept into the world, into the human race. It created a separation between us and God. And as God removed his presence from the world, that which he created to exist in beauty and harmony fell into chaos, disorder, and corruption. And for thousands of years, for dozens of generations, they waited for God to alleviate the problem. That's why Matthew goes to an extent to give you a long list of names that reads much like a phone book so you would anticipate, just like they anticipated, the coming of God's alleviation of the problem. Now here's the thing, is it is so hard, it is so hard to wait for God to alleviate a problem, isn't it? I mean, mean, not just in the significant, like the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, but in in the complete trivial as well, it is very, very difficult for for God to alleviate or to wait for God to alleviate a problem in our lives. Even this week, uh, on Monday, we we saw this in our office. We're we're working upstairs. It's me, Andy, and Turney, and, and we're working. And all of a sudden, Andy pulls out his earbuds, looks up, and he says, hey, is anybody else's Gmail down? My Gmail's down. To which I stop what I'm doing and I check my Gmail and see that my Gmail's down as well. I say, Turney, is your Gmail down? Turney pulls up his Gmail. His Gmail is down as well. And chaos ensues in the office. All productivity comes to a screeching halt. We're searching Twitter. Tens of thousands of people have tweeted about the fact that Gmail is now down. We've searched on Google News to see that multiple news outlets have written stories about the fact that Gmail is down, not only in our office, but it seems worldwide. Productivity has come to a screeching halt because Gmail was down, forget this, literally 12 minutes. This is tremendously difficult to wait for a problem to be alleviated, even the seemingly trivial. When our email goes down, when DirecTV loses its signal, it's like, Google, I know you didn't exist 10 years ago, but I'm pretty sure you're essential to my fundamental happiness. And so if you don't fix this problem, ASAP, it is not going to go well in here. Have you experienced what it's like? To just wait. I'm not talking about something significant in your life. For the seemingly trivial. How how hard it is to wait for even the insignificant to be fixed in your life. And and if you waited for for not the insignificant, but the significant, for for that which truly matters. I mean, you think it's hard to wait for Gmail to be fixed. How hard is it to wait for something significant? I mean, some of you you had a very distinct picture in your mind uh, of what your life would look like by your age now, you know, whether it's 25 or 30 or 40, some of you have a distinct picture in your mind of what your life would look like and who you would be dating and who you would be married to and how many kids you would have or how much money you would make or uh, what job title you would have. And you were fine waiting, but once you hit 25, 30, and 40, you don't seem anything close to that. The anxiety grows. The panic starts to stir inside your heart. And you're not sure how much you can wait for God to deliver on something you so desperately want him to deliver on. Others of you experience this in your relationships, whether that's your spouse, whether that's a friend, whether that's a coworker, whether it's somebody you're responsible for at work, and you've seen a character flaw in their lives. You've had a conversation about that character flaw in their lives. You've had dozens of conversations about the character flaw in their lives, and it's affecting you negatively, and you're like, how much longer do I have to wait? How many more conversations do I have to have for the problem to be alleviated This should be fixed by now? Maybe it's not the problem of somebody else, but maybe it's a problem in your own life. 
and you've diagnosed it in yourself. You've sought community to help you put it to death. You've memorized verses. You've had conversations. Maybe you've even sought more professional counseling to help it go away. And yet it remains. And you wait. And you wonder if God is moving, if he's working, if he's near, if he cares. Why is it that I still experience this struggle and this trial and this character flaw? Again, how much longer do I have to wait? Oh, God. It is so hard to wait for God to alleviate a problem. And what I want you to see from Matthew's st- or from the story that Matthew is telling about Joseph uh, is not that there's a tidy explanation here. You know, it's not like, okay, well, in, by the way, here's three points that make everything all better. I mean, no. I mean, sometimes in our lives, there are just significant periods of waiting. There's just significant periods of waiting. I mean, what you see in the story of Joseph is a man whose family waited uh, not for months, not for years, but for millennia for God to deliver on the greatest promise that he ever made. I mean, do you know what it's like to wait that long for something? And sometimes it just happens. Sometimes in our lives, the waiting period is months. Sometimes in our lives, the waiting period for what we want the most is years. I mean, what you see from the story of Joseph is sometimes it's more difficult than that. The story is bigger than us, and the promise is not delivered until our children's children. It even exceeds our own lifespan. Sometimes there are just periods of waiting. That's what we see in the story of Joseph. But not just that, but what we also see in the story of Joseph is that just because you may be waiting, it doesn't mean that God isn't moving. Just because you're waiting doesn't mean that God isn't moving. Just because from our finite perspective, we look at our circumstances and what's happening and our frustration mounting that God is not good enough, that he is not involved enough, that he is not near enough to fix the problem that we want fixed on the timeline that we want it fixed on. Just because God isn't moving in the way you want him to does not mean that he's not moving at all. What you see from the story of Joseph is just because God says to a family, not now, doesn't mean that he's saying no. Just because God isn't moving exactly the way you want doesn't mean he's not moving at all. Just because you're waiting doesn't mean he's absent or far off. What we see the story of Joseph from the very beginning is sometimes there are significant periods of waiting. Here's Joseph's family waiting 2,000 years for God to deliver on the greatest promise that he ever made. Now, I wish I could say uh, at this point then that um, things get better for Joseph, but they actually shift Uh, from being inconvenient to crisis-inducing, okay? So we're going to try to make this the most depressing Christmas sermon ever. Um, What we see is not just a way, but a dilemma, okay? A significant dilemma. And uh, look with me at the end of verse 18 and into verse 19 as well. So when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, Let me give you a little background of what's going on here, and then we'll talk about the dilemma that uh, Joseph faced. Now, the background is that Mary and Joseph are betrothed. They are betrothed. Now, uh, betrothal was on one hand uh, not marriage, okay? So they had not been physically intimate with one another yet. But at the same time, it was much more serious than engagement, uh, you know, especially our cultural notion of engagement, uh, where they could have, if they broke up, if they ended the betrothal, it would require them to go through the legal process of getting a certificate of divorce. So this was a really big deal. And so, uh, you know, Joseph finds out that his wife is now with child. Uh, This is uh, 
before they are married. So he knows that he's not the dad. Okay? So he's, he's put in this place of, what do I do now uh, with my teenage bride who got married before, or who got pregnant before we were married? What, what do I do? How do I respond to her? I mean, he's even going to find out very shortly that the child is born by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. But still, what does he do? So he, he comes to a place where he's presented with this dilemma as he figures out, how do I deal with my teenage, soon-to-be bride? Now, the, the options are twofold, neither of which is uh, particularly desirable. Uh, number one, I can divorce Mary, right? I, I, that's originally his plan. I'm going to divorce Mary. Now, this option uh, isn't maybe the most praiseworthy, but it's probably the easiest. Because think about this. Uh, for him to marry her, to commit to him, himself to her, would mean that he is committing himself to somebody who is perceived to be a blemished bride, that, that her guilt would become his own. And, he would be mo- and so the easiest thing would be to say, you know what, I had nothing to do with this. I'm going to divorce myself from her. Sure, it may require me to disobey what God's about to tell me in the next verses. It may require me to lose the love of my life that I was planning to spend my, the rest of my life with. But the reality is, is at least I can separate myself, disassociate myself from her perceived guilt, and I can just sort of start fresh, and this isn't going to be anything that's a major hiccup in my life. Now, option one, I divorce Mary. Option two is I marry Mary, right? I commit myself to Mary. And this is not, I mean, I think on one hand, the spiritual romantics in the room say, well, like, this isn't that big of a deal. Like, at least you'll have each other. At least you'll have love. At least you'll be obeying God. But the reality is, is like, they don't have much beyond that. Because you need to keep in mind that Mary got pregnant before their wedding day, and it's happened in a very, very small town. Now, some of you grew up in similar small towns where if you or somebody you were in a relationship with got, mar- got pregnant before marriage, the reality is, is it wouldn't go well for you, right? It wouldn't go well for you. I mean, all you have to do is watch MTV's Teen Mom to see how there's this cultural fascination when people get pregnant before they're married, especially at their teenage years. And just like it wouldn't go well today if you're on MTV's Teen Mom, uh, it wouldn't go well back then as well, especially since you wouldn't get to have a reality show where you make a lot of money uh, as well. It, It would not go well for you whatsoever. Their lives would be over because what would happen in the midst of this as Joseph committed himself to Mary is that even though her guilt was alleged, that what the town would go and say is, not you did this, Mary, but y'all did this, Mary and Joseph, right? I'm imagining they're in the south somewhere. So not you did this, Mary, but y'all did this, Mary and Joseph. And what it would require for Joseph to unite himself to Mary is to say, I will take on a blemished bride as my own. I will commit myself to her. I will marry her, but it will come at a great expense, at a great cost to me. It will require me to associate myself uh, and take on her guilt as my own. Two very difficult options. One one is easy. uh, You know, it comes with its challenges. One is right. One is clean and tidy and, and convenient. One is obedience to God and radical faith. What do you do? I bring this up because what I've noticed, uh, not only from Joseph's story, but in the lives of many of the people that I get to spend time with, is that prior to God ending a wait, that, that prior to God delivering on a promise, prior to God bringing about a major blessing in somebody's life, he, he first throws us into a dilemma. He first throws us into a dilemma. So uh, l- let me tell you where I see this. Um, uh, 
a big part of my job is I get with people when they are on the, the precipice, when they are on the cusp, when they are on the edge of making a major decision uh, in what their relationship with God is going to look like. And, and maybe that means starting to follow Jesus. Maybe that means rededicating a life to Jesus. Maybe it means uh, starting to follow Jesus in a particular area of our lives where it's been difficult for other people or been difficult for us to follow Jesus, like the way we handle our money or the way we handle relationships or something like that. Uh, so I get to have all these conversations. Chances are, if you walk into a coffee shop in Denver, uh, you're going to see people talking about the Broncos. You're going to see people talking about politics. And you'll see me, the weirdo in the corner, uh, talking about Jesus. You know, and many of you have been the weirdo in the corner with me uh, having that conversation. And here's what I've noticed. is just before God does a major work, just before God brings a major blessing, he first throws us into a dilemma. He first throws us into a dilemma that is very similar to what Joseph faces here. I'm not saying it happens all the time. I'm not saying this, you know, there's a verse. I'm just saying continually what I see in the pattern of people's lives who are on the precipice of God doing a great work in their lives is he throws us into a dilemma. Now, let me put some flesh onto that idea. Um, so some of you here tonight, uh, you're not Christians. Okay, I don't mean that, I don't mean that in a, uh, uh, a condescending way whatsoever. I'm just saying when it comes down to it, um, you don't have a personal faith in Jesus that's your own. Maybe you grew up going to church. Maybe you had a distant relative who was a pastor at some point. Uh, but when it comes down to you having like a thriving personal relationship with Jesus where you're following him, uh, that would not describe you. And, you know, maybe you've come to the summit. This is your first time coming to the summit. Um, maybe you've been coming for months. But you have started to examine what does it mean for you to follow Jesus? What what would it look like for you to have a radical personal faith of your own? And you're smart. And as you're working through that, what what you understand is it's not as simple as like God gives me two options and one is completely easy and one's very difficult. No, no, it's much more complex than that. What you understand is before God gives you that blessing of having a thriving personal relationship with, with him, your creator, he first puts you into a dilemma. See, on one hand, yes, you you get to be forgiven by God. You get to be loved by God. You get to experience the the daily presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Uh, Yes, you get to experience that. But but there's this dilemma because as you're about to make that decision, what you recognize is like, if I follow through with this, things are going to have to change. Like, I'm not going to get to be the final authority in my life. And it means there's going to be things that I, I want to do that I don't get to do because I've surrendered the lordship of my life to Jesus. What, what it means is there's activities that you've participated in thousands of times before without a guilty conscience whatsoever. And all of a sudden, you're like, if I follow Jesus, there may be this weight that rests down on my heart or I feel that God's presence desires of me that I would lead, lead a transformed and redeemed life for him. I mean, it's not as simple as follow Jesus and it doesn't cost you anything whatsoever. No, there's, there's this dilemma where, yes, on one hand, you may experience this great blessing of God moving in an incredible, mighty way in your life, but it's going to cost you something as well. It's not, that doesn't end even just when you first become a Christian, but it continues as you grow in your faith as well. And so some of you experience this now even later on where uh, as you are growing in your faith with Christ, what you understand is you're about to take a major step in your faith, and it's going to cost you something. You've been thrown into a dilemma before you're going to experience that blessing. So uh, what I see sometimes with this is people who experience this financially, for example, in their generosity. So um, what happens is you know, people start to understand the generosity of God towards them, and they understand the call of God on their lives to be generous in response, and they get really excited about being generous. So some of you are like this 
in this room. You, you've gotten to the point where you study the Bible, you understand the call of God on your life to be generous, you understand that it helps you understand God's generosity better when you're generous in return as well. You, you, you no longer, you don't want to spend 100% of your income on yourself. You don't want to spend 120% of your income on yourself uh, if you run up credit cards like that. Uh, you want to spend, you know, I'm going to give away 10% of my income. Okay, I'm going to give 10% of my income, and I'm excited about that, and I want to do that. And I, 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 but what happens is you get to the point where I'm actually going to follow through with this step, and even if it's something as practical as like getting ready to start recurring giving to the Summit Church or writing a check, all of a sudden there's this twinge in your heart of feeling that dilemma to say, like, this is going to cost me something. This is going to actually require some sacrifice from me. I mean, what this is going to mean is like, I'm not going to be able to buy everything that I ever want to buy. What it means is I'm not going to be able to experience maybe the full quality of life that my income enables me to, before experiencing the blessing that comes with being generous in response to God's generosity, he throws you in this dilemma to say, how much is it worth to you? It's going to cost you something. Have you, have you understood that it's going to require something from you in return? Others of you experience this not just in a generous sense, but a geographical sense as well. See, what I see is people who move here to Denver, and they move here to Denver to kind of do the transient thing where you're here for a couple of years, and then you go do something else, or move back home, or finally, you know, start taking your life seriously, moving back close to your parents. And what, what I've seen is that there's some people in the life of our church who plan to move here for a short period of time, and, and then what God starts to stir inside their hearts is like a real love for the city and a real love for our church's mission and what they've experienced God do. And then all of a sudden they're thrown into this place where it's like, God may be calling me not to just be here for a season, but for a lifetime. Like that, that's the decision my, me and my family have made. Like, we're not here just for a season, we're here for a lifetime. And, and you've started to wrap your mind around like, what a blessing it would be to let the mission and the call of God shape your zip code uh, more than where you can make the most money or where it's safest or where it's easiest or where it's most convenient to you. And, and so you're thinking about, considering, putting your yes on the table for the rest of your life but you know that it'll cost you something in return. I mean, you would be foolish to think that it's not going to cost you anything whatsoever. And as somebody who's made that decision, there's the cost of being far away from family and being away from the friends that you grew up with and not being able to make as much money if you don't take the next job offer and not being able to advance in your career exactly in the way that you could most advance in your career. Yes, there's this tremendous blessing that comes with letting the mission of God shape where it is that you live, but it's going to cost you something. There's going to be a dilemma. Uh, you're going to be put into a place where you'll have to decide between what is easy and what is right. Not all the time. Not all the time. But what we see from Joseph and what we see in many of our lives as well is, is that just before God brings this major blessing, before God does a major work, he first brings this dilemma. I mean, Joseph is in this place where he's about to become stepdad to the son of God. But prior to that, he has to make a decision. Will I obey God? and do what is difficult and what is hard and what will be costly to me, but do what is right. Or will I take the easy route and will I separate myself from this blemished bride so I can start clean? It's a choice that many of us encounter, whether you're making the decision tonight if you're going to become a Christian, whether you're making the choice tonight of where you're going to live or what your bank account is going to look like that all of us have to make. Will I ultimately cling to temporary things and forfeit a thriving, radical relationship with the God who loved me and saved me and redeemed me? Will I make temporary sacrifices for the sake of gaining the joy that is eternal in Christ? 
It's the choice that Joseph had to make in terms of what he was going to do with his teenage bride after she find, he finds out that she's pregnant. It's the choice that many of us have to make as well. God brings us weight, and then he answers it, not perfectly redeeming it, but putting us into a dilemma as well. Now, so that this is not the most depressing uh, Christmas sermon ever, what we're going to talk about now is the resolution, okay? So not just a weight, not just a dilemma, but now a resolution. Look at verse 20. It says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So what happens is Joseph is working through this dilemma. God, out of his grace, sends an angel, a messenger to Joseph, to tell him what's up and what it is that he needs to do. And what I love is that as Joseph endures this weight, as Joseph endures this dilemma, God brings this resolution. And what he does, what we're going to see here in these verses, is that God brings a resolution in three really simple ways. Now, the first way that God is going to bring a resolution, both to Joseph's issues and my, and my issues and yours, is that what God is first going to do is he is going to identify with us. Okay, God is going to identify with us. And look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is what we celebrate at Christmas, is that God chooses to be with us. It's not just what we celebrate at Christmas, but it's what makes the Christian faith so unbelievably unique. See, here's the thing, is that other world religions in no way would doubt the fact that you may have problems in your life, that you may have struggles, that you may have trials, but the extent of what you're offered for comfort uh, is sometimes religious principles to build up endurance, maybe as encouragement so that you can uh, get through whatever it is you're going through. It's in the Christian faith alone. It is in Christianity alone that God offers you not principles, not platitudes. In Christianity alone, God offers us himself. That's what we celebrate at Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. And it should shake us the uniqueness and the beauty of what God does at Christmas. In fact, I love what... um, uh, Famous German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he writes about this. He says, in the Jesus child of Mary lives the almighty God. He says, wait a minute. Don't speak. Stop thinking. Stand still before this statement. God becomes a child. Here he is, poor like us, miserable and helpless like us, a person of flesh and blood like us, our brother. And yet he is God. He is might. It's the beauty of what we celebrate at Christmas, Emmanuel, that God is with us. He is not immune to our weeping. He is not immune to our trials. He is not immune to our waiting or to our dilemmas. In Christmas, in Emmanuel, in God becoming man, he, he jumps into the human experience. He moves into the neighborhood of humanity, and he experiences the fullness of the trials and temptations of what happens as you go through the, normal, the natural part of the human experience. Not only does God identify with us, but second, God sacrifices for us. We're actually going to jump back up if you look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. The text says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, even from Jesus' birth, God has sacrifice in mind. Even from the cradle, God knew that Jesus was headed for the cross. Now, what's important for you to understand about this uh, is that 
let's, let's jump back. Do you, do you remember that what Joseph's dilemma was? Remember we just talked about Joseph's dilemma? Joseph's dilemma uh, is he's got one of two options. Uh, he can either uh, reject, he can divorce his bride, or, or he can accept her at a great cost to himself. Remember we, we talked about this. And what's happening in verse 21 is God is saying to Joseph, Joseph, your dilemma is my dilemma. Joseph, your dilemma is my dilemma. Now, if you remember, we, we talked about the fundamental problem in humanity is sin. It's a spiritual cancer that separates us from God. And it's interesting, during the 2,000-year wait of, uh, of uh, Joseph's family, the question that kept recurring again and again and again, just read the Old Testament and you'll see this, is how can a righteous groom be united to a blemished bride? How, how does that work? How, how does a righteous groom be united to a blemished bride? How does a, a holy, righteous God dwell, unite himself to love, commit a sinful, jacked-up people just like me and just like you? How does a righteous groom like God marry a blemished bride like us? And verse 21 is the answer to that question. See, from the very beginning, from, from the cradle Jesus has the cross in mind. In fact, the angel says that his name will be Jesus, which means God saves. And in that declaration, even of his name, what God is saying is that I will take on a blemish. I will not divorce a blemished people. I will love a blemished people. I will not separate myself, isolate. I, I will unite myself to a sinful, corrupted people, but it will be costly. It will be tremendously costly, but I will take on that cost. I will take on that guilt. I will take on that shame as my own. You see, Mary's sin was merely alleged. Our sin is unbelievably actual. And God, through giving us his son and saying that he will save and he will not just be born, but that he will die and he will raise again. God is saying, I will be a righteous groom that takes on a blemished bride at a great expense to myself. Even from his birth, Jesus had his sacrifice in mind, and he takes on the, the, the dilemma of Joseph to redeem a, a blemished bride. Not only that, but finally, what we see is that God changes us. God changes us. And look at the rest of the story. I love this. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I love this because five verses prior, Joseph is resolved to divorce his soon-to-be bride. He has an encounter with the living God, and it forever changes him. And that's what I love about this text is that ultimately what, what's being communicated here is that the Christmas story isn't merely to... Uh, something to celebrate. It's not merely something to inspire. It's meant to change our lives. Joseph has an encounter with the living God, and it forever changes him. When he encounters uh, his identification, when he encounters his willingness to save, Joseph is forever changed. And that's what I would say. As, as we celebrate Christmas, my, my challenge to you would, would not only to be inspired by Christmas, not only celebrate Christmas, but to be changed by Christmas. That God's identification with you, his willingness to save us would forever change you. I mean, maybe it means then that you make the decision even tonight to follow Jesus for the first time in your life and actually make your faith your own. Maybe it means finally being obedient in, a, in an area of your life that's been difficult for you to be obedient. And the story is not merely meant to inspire, but it's meant to change. 
And so as we celebrate Christmas, here's what I've been praying for you uh, throughout this week. That, that as you endure uh, the weights that God throws you, to, throws you in, as, he, uh, as you try to survive the dilemmas, oftentimes you're, you're stuck within, that what God would give you is such a faith and a confidence in him that in the midst of the weight, he, he would give you the patience and the love of his character and integrity that, that rather than your joy in him being determined by your circumstances, it would, be, it would be determined by his unchanging character and nature and the promises he's made to you. That as you get thrown to the dilemmas and as you struggle with choosing between what is right and what is easy, what is obedient and what is convenient, as you struggle to decide what it is, that I, what my relationship is going to look like, and you understand that it's going to cost you something in return, that you would look at the one who, who sacrificed everything for you, and his generosity would produce in you generosity in return. And as he identifies, and as he saves, and as he changes, that Christmas would not be a season, it would be a lifestyle from this day forth. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you do identify with a blemished bride and that you take on our guilt as your own. And even though you are righteous and we are unrighteous, even though you are lovely and we are unlovely, you chose to love us and to care for us and to take care of us and ultimately to die for us and to rise for us as well. So God, I pray that we would rightly respond to the message of Christmas not just a holiday season or an excuse for parties, but instead a celebration that you chose to move into the neighborhood of humanity and to change everything. And God, as we sing, as we baptize, as we celebrate, uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move, that we would rightly respond, and that the men and women in this room would obey, believe, and follow you as we should. God, do your work, and we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.